there's a much more important conversation that nobody is having. Not only is the world changing and it's requiring a different mode of thinking yeah. from every leader, but you know that it's happening. You might not have words for it, you might not have frameworks for it, but it's happening all around you and you see it. Welcome back everybody to Building Better Games. Agile, are you feeling cynical about Agile or tired of hearing about it? Have you had bad experiences with managers trying to push Agile processes or ideas and felt they made the team less effective? What was the whole point of agility in the first place and why should I care about it at all? For many today, it creates frustration, cynicism, or even anger. There is public outrage on social media about how managers abuse these concepts to inflict unspeakable horrors upon their teams and products. It seems we lost our way here and nobody even remembers why we started in the first place. What we all know though, is that our world is getting more complex and changing faster every day, especially in creative development like video games. How does this relate to the problems and challenges we're experiencing in our industry right now? We've never dealt with more complexity, uncertainty, and change than we are right now. What can we do about it? And how, if at all, does Agile play a role in that? Today, we're going to deep dive on all of this and answer many of these questions. Uh, just to kick things off, I've been actually surprised. Maybe I shouldn't have been. I've been surprised at this significant uptick of anger and resentment targeted at these ideas. And I would say, when I say these ideas, I mean anything that is like under the umbrella of agile. Mm -hmm. And I think for most people, they associate that with a set of sort of middle management practices and bureaucracy yeah. that they find frustrating. So, so in that sense, I almost feel like it's kind of wrapped up into a lot of the undercurrent that's been happening since the pandemic started of the sort of management class versus the worker class. This isn't about Agile at a conceptual level, it's about Scrum, but I just wanted to read this tweet to kind of give you an impression here. This is from a large influencer on Twitter. The tweet is, Scrum is a cancer. I wrote this down and the internet had thoughts about it. After 3,400 replies, I learned a few things. First, the most common jobs among the people who told me I was wrong were Agile coach and Scrum master, in quotes. They feel very strongly in favor of Scrum, and I'm not sure why. I'm assuming that's sarcasm. Second, Scrum can't fail because Scrum is whatever you want Scrum to be. There's no right way to do Scrum, so if it doesn't work for you, you aren't as bright as you thought you were. Third, Scrum isn't agile, except when it is. But it is much better than Waterfall, except when it isn't. And it's better than nothing and everything at the same time. Fourth, then he goes into this whole thing of his comparison. He apparently made a comparison between Scrum and communism that pissed a lot of people off. And, apparent, <laughs> and apparently, the, apparently the people who didn't like that comparison were people who were favorable towards communism. Anyway, kind of off the, just bumping off the road here in a Jeep. I think the summary here is like, if you're a real engineer or a real artist or like a real kind of get stuff done, pragmatic contributor, you must hate this stuff because it's indicative of a bureaucratic hell that some man in a suit is trying to inflict on you. One, 
I think that the objection runs deeper. And it's interesting that you brought up the management versus the worker. And again, we're not thinking about this in some sort of communist manifesto style, but more just like the current world of middle management and the worker being at odds to each other in some ways and having cross incentives. That one is that this isn't actually localized to agility at all. A lot of the objections that we see go to things that exist today and have existed for a very long time that predate Agile or any of its practices, like roadmaps or estimation. Even, again, the idea of having a leader or person who is managing a process or leading a team, all of these things are are under scrutiny. They don't fall under the Agile umbrella. Mm -hmm. That's one thing to think about. There's too many things that fall into this bucket that are not related to agility directly. Well, one thing I want to say is I don't think most people know that. Yep. You and I feel that way. That's our perspective. We study this and we consider ourselves expert on the subject and we teach people this stuff. So I think for us, we make that distinction. But I'm recognizing, and I think that this helps me understand where a lot of folks are coming from more, that for them, Agile is that bucket of all these things. And that ties into that idea of Agile as a catchphrase for all the things that my manager does that I don't like, or Mm -hmm. all the ways in which I don't see my manager adding direct value. Or at the very least, a bunch of process stuff and organizational stuff that my company is likely to ask me to do. I am basically implicated in this system, regardless of whether I want to be or not. I don't have to be asked permission. It's just like, hey, yeah, well, we do Agile here. And then the hilarious thing is that means a million different things, depending on who you ask. I think for you and I, this conversation goes a little bit deeper because I don't know how you feel. But for me, I think what frustrates me about this argument isn't that I don't have empathy for both sides, like the developers who are like, screw this, I'm tired of this crap, or the managers who are like, I need to manage things and I don't know how and why are my developers giving me such a hard time about this? Like I get both sides of that conversation. But for me, I'm not interested in having that conversation at all, because for me, I feel like there's a much more important conversation that nobody is having. And that's the one you and I really tend to emphasize when we talk to people about this is like, not only is the world changing and it's requiring a different mode of thinking, like a different MO from every leader, but you know that it's happening. You might not have words for it. You might not have frameworks for it. You might not even really have awareness of it. Right. But it's happening all around you and you see it. We want to talk about how you can understand the world around you in practical terms so that you know why you're using a certain process or solution. Or you can, instead of just saying, this meeting is stupid, I don't like this, or saying, hey guys, this meeting's really important, we have to have it, that you can actually pull back and have a more enlightened conversation about the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. When you take on practices, whether they're agile or not, and you intake them into a culture that is dysfunctional, it doesn't matter whether you call it a stand-up or a status report, it doesn't matter whether you call it a sprint or a product cycle. It doesn't, none of this matters. You're going to contort any of the good into the default frame and underlying culture that exists at that organization. And then the fact that you threw some words that are associated with Agile on top of it, 
or not, right? It doesn't matter that you contort it into the dysfunctional shape and then it makes sense for everybody to decry it. And again, appropriately so because it's a dysfunctional underlying leadership culture and behavioral set of norms. Yeah. And as we often say, you cannot fix culture with process. There is a general lack of awareness around the things that are causing us to need to make certain decisions. Ben and I have an interesting slide in our agility training that is causes the most discussion amongst our classes. The slide is trying to illustrate this idea that in a modern day environment, the idea of what we call product discovery is an ongoing thing. There's not a discovery phase at the beginning of the product where you just ask all these questions, you get all these answers, and now you're done. All you need to do is just build the thing. Generally speaking, especially in creative development like games, there is an active discovery happening all the way through the product lifecycle. Using the Mona Lisa painting as an example, this agile idea of sort of iteratively figuring out what the painting needs to be. So at first, if you just painted, what's the backdrop? Then if you sort of painted the outline of a woman and then you started filling in some of the colors. And so there's like a, a process optimized for learning. And then there's another one where it's like you literally actually cut like little tiny portions out of the painting and just do them one by one. So you complete the top left quadrant, then you complete the top middle quadrant and you get them up to 100% quote unquote shippable before you move on to the next, which is the more kind of traditional approach to product development, the more like locked in, plan everything up front waterfall, if you will. And one of the things that comes up is that was really interesting for us is a lot of history professionals looked at that slide and said, hey, do you guys realize that in the olden days, people used to paint like that? They used to paint in the waterfall way. They would actually paint quadrant by quadrant by quadrant. Quadrant by quadrant, or like section by section, right? It was interesting for us because we had to start thinking about why. We did this regularly, but it caused us to take a step back and go, okay, that's true. Why is that true? Mm -hmm. And this is the thing that people aren't doing today. They're just, they're thinking purely about the technique. They're thinking purely about the chosen logistical path they've taken. If you're using leadership paradigms or management paradigms that were developed and sort of founded 150 years ago, if you're thinking about the world in those terms, you are using outdated models to relate to your team because those models made a set of assumptions about rate of change, cost of change, controllability of the environment, uncertainty, innovation required, all these things that we're going to go into more detail in a little bit later. They made assumptions about those that were true then far more so than they are today. And that lack of ability to understand the shift means that you show up and you're going like, well, I need to make sure everybody knows what to do. And Aaron and I immediately go, no, you need to make sure everybody knows where we're trying to go yeah. because the change is so fast. If they can't iterate to get there, you're not going to make it or you're going to make it in a really bad way. I love this example. This is one of my favorite examples, too, is like hearkening back to the 19th century. And I would say actually really kind of accelerating with the assembly line. Yes. When everybody's got their part of the assembly line, like you screw the bolt onto the thing, then you stamp the manifold and then you move this thing over to this bucket. And you're just like a literally a cog in the system. Creativity is damaging. Because if you start like being like, well, I think there's a better way to do this process and you start changing stuff, the whole assembly line screeches to a halt. Like the fact of the matter is 
during that time, a human's ability to add value to that system was based in many respects on their ability to follow orders and fit within their role, their very specific role in that very defined system with as little variation as possible. And by the way, if this is starting to sound a little bit like the project management system that your organization uses to make games, that's worth questioning, right? It doesn't mean there's a right or wrong, but this is the kind of stuff we're trying to get you to think about. Now, look at us making games today, right? So much emotion, so much nuance, so much like goal alignment, all this stuff. Now, yeah. all of a sudden, this human variation is a boon. It's a benefit. Like having the QA associate who gives you that game-winning idea that you never expected because they understood the goal and they were just leveraging their creative brain that day now might be the best thing that happens to your team that week. Wow, what a shift, yes. right? And so now, but now we have to contain all that human chaos as well, right? So we benefit from it, but now we don't have butts and seats anymore. We're trying to do modern management methods. And if we go too far down that side of things, we, we're just kind of sitting around playing kumbaya all day and never get anything done, right? Right, yeah, yeah. And that that creates the stereotype of the agile coach who doesn't actually know anything, doesn't actually do anything, just sits around, asks questions. When anything goes wrong, they say, well, I empowered the team to make that decision, <laughs> yeah. right? And like, that's incorrect. We do not advocate for that. Although the skill sets of being able to observe, empower teams and all these things, those are good, ask good questions. These are all valuable skill sets. But you can go too far in either direction here. And that yeah. a lot of this comes back to this idea of what's the goal and what are sort of the spaces that are the variables in the environment that are constraining that system. And so, so all of this leads to this world where the defined work that was so important to human endeavor and that we wanted to, like you said, control the human variability in, like we don't want that. Now humans are being put to work in almost exclusively or more exclusively, perhaps the empirical space where creativity, uncertainty, unknowns are the things that humans are uniquely able to grapple with and machines can't handle. That's something that the human requires. It's funny because you and I emphasize that when we're when we're training leaders, we emphasize this idea of exercising judgment so much. And I think that great leaders are doing that constantly, exercising judgment and, yes. and, and trying to improve the quality of their judgment. This is very related to that trend. And so all this is to say, you know, there is this spectrum between defined work and empirical work and how we've oscillated throughout human history, we've oscillated back and forth on that spectrum. But the general trend over thousands of years has been moving from defined toward empirical. So when we say empirical, by the way, it's like, you know, inspect, adapt, inspect, adapt. Like I'm watching the environment and then I'm reacting to the environment that yeah. I'm watching. So it's, you're constantly taking in new information so that the nimbleness of that approach, by the way, is very synonymous with the idea behind agile. So really agile boiled down to its most simplistic form, I think is just an expression of a way to think about the world to deal with that reality that is becoming more empirical over time. Yes. That's it. When I think about agile, agile is us trying to apply the lessons we've learned about how to focus on value and the audience or customer and learning and these sorts of things into those empirical creative spaces. Interestingly, 
in the factory environment, they had the same revolution in the mid 20th century with the advent of lean, uh, the Toyota production system. And that was these same ideas. How do we get value to a customer? How do we do all this, but in a defined, in a primarily defined environment where everything is? And I want to really quickly just call out when we say defined, we actually mean that we know exactly what we're trying to do when we start. You know, we've already done all the work to plan it out. And, you know, we've done all the concepting ideation. And by the way, the best way to know that is to have done it already before. Exactly. And so factory lines know exactly what's supposed to come out the other side. Variance is bad. Um, so you want it's a defined process to create a defined item. An empirical process control is something like if I'm creating music, because I don't quite know exactly what I want. And I'm trying to figure that out as I go. And I'm going to listen to it and try again and listen to it and try again and listen to it and try again. And then eventually I'll reach this point where I'm like, okay, this is good enough, but I'll know it when I see it. And yeah, I'll know it when I hear it, you know, it's a judgment call of when we've hit that line. And so these are two different types of working. And that's when we talk about like defined, defined was the dominant, like if you were a farmer, there were a bunch of defined things that you did. There were variances in the system, like, oh, a tornado came through and knocked out half my crop or something like that, that you had to deal with. But in terms of like, you knew when you had to put the seed in the ground, you knew when you had to water and, and till and like do all these things and harvest. And by the way, also like ideas were cheap. Implementation was really expensive. Mm-hmm. And that's really key to keep in mind. Like anyone could have an idea. An idea was super cheap. You could have a hundred ideas a day, but building anything was really expensive. So it makes sense to sit around thinking and planning for long periods of time because that's cheap. Because you don't want to start paying the massive expense of building until you've got everything perfectly in order in your head, right? Now we're actually moving to the opposite paradigm where building things is almost zero. We're moving into a world where eventually the cost of making stuff, like you can imagine not in the not too distant future, 3D printing and robots just being able to dynamically take an idea that you as an imp a human input and just create it. Just be like, here it is. Yeah. Well, we're almost getting there with code where yeah. you're almost like some of the AI solutions around code are I just tell the AI what I want the code to do, and then all the code gets written for me. Yeah. And so obviously we're not in a world yet where building is cheaper than ideas, but we're moving to a price of building is declining rapidly. And yes. so it's changing the whole dynamic. Like ideas, I think we're experiencing times where we actually realize that ideas can be very expensive. Right. One example is like, hey, we just need to get to work making this thing. We can't sit around like all these ideas are clogging yes. up the system and we're not yes. getting anything done because all we do is sit around and talk about ideas all day. Right. This is actually seen as a competitive disadvantage now to run your organization like that. We've talked about some of the challenges. I want to tie this back into what you were talking about at the beginning, which is this core frustration that many developers have to the idea of scrum safe agile yeah. agile scrum safe yeah. all this different stuff waterfall even the discussion around this i think for some people it's just like can you just let me work yeah can you please just get out of my way with all of your process and all the meetings and all the bs and my estimation and you want me to put in the roadmap and can i just sit down and do work and again even as somebody who's 
almost exclusively been in leadership roles, I can so relate to that, right? I can so relate to that frustration. I'm not the guy who loves sitting in meetings. <laughs> Neither are you. I mean, I, I will say that as with so many other things, I tend to not be like, am I for or against meetings? I am for good meetings and against bad meetings. Right. And when you were talking about meetings, something came up for me, which is like collaboration. Collaboration is a great tool to burn down uncertainty yep. and to get a group of people aligned on the goal so that they can, because when people are aligned, it allows each individual in that group to maximally leverage their human creativity toward the goal, right? Like if mm -hmm. I understand the goal through collaborating with my team and my leaders, then any creative thought I have is much more likely to be something that's going to be on target. That's going to be a valuable idea. So this is why we focus on collaboration. It's not because we just, we want to be modern management people who like it when teams get together and they have like barbecue days and talk to each other about the wife and kids. Like that's not what it's about. Although those things are great. And again, I think that so many people confuse a lot of these like agile practices is like, well, this is just great for people because we care about people and things. It's like, no, collaboration is one of the most effective tools we have to actually make progress on the product when this uncertainty is high. Yeah. We're thinking in the, like you said this earlier, we're thinking at the symptomatic layer. We're yes. thinking at the highest level and the least useful in some ways level of analysis of just good meeting or bad meeting. Yeah. Right. Instead of wait, why does the meeting exist? Is that thing. So let's say I have a meeting and that meeting is about collaboration. Is collaboration important to my environment or not? Mm -hmm. And by the way, there are environments where collaboration is not important to some of the problems that are being solved. And that's OK. And so if you had a meeting that was all about collaboration, you were like, well, we always have the meeting. It's about collaboration. If someone were to correctly say, we don't need to collaborate. We're all working on separate things, independent of each other. You should stop having that meeting, yeah. even though it's part of a system or anything like that. So, you know, again, what good looks like shifts dramatically depending on what your mindset is, an empirical mindset or a defined mindset. And when we talk about agility, I want to be super clear here. When Ben and I talk about agility, what we're talking about is your ability to accurately assess your environment, whatever that is, mm -hmm. and come up with a management approach that best serves for that environment and those people. That's all we mean. That's yes. it. It doesn't mean going to 15 minute daily standups. It doesn't mean having retrospectives. It doesn't mean doing code reviews. It, it doesn't mean any of that. Those are all like tactical level techniques. We're talking about just being thoughtful about your environment. Yes. And so one of the first steps to be thoughtful is like what we Ben and I were talking about. Think about that trend, the defined empirical trend going back thousands of years of human history and how that's shifting and the forces that are at work there. Now I want to give you a framework that you can use to, uh, that is six things you can think about, six ways yeah. in which the world is changing and six ways in which you could sort of measure things on a spectrum to understand whether you are more defined or more empirical. And by the way, very important what Aaron just said, more defined or more empirical. If you've been listening to this point, I want to make sure this is crystal clear. 
This is not a binary. You are not either in a defined environment or an empirical environment. One of the things that makes this so difficult and nuanced and why all the simple answers out there are insufficient to the complexity of the real world is because you are always in some percentage of both. And this is why construction projects are late, even though they're fully defined processes from a planning perspective. Everything's supposed to go just the way it's supposed to go, except that there was rain on the wrong day, except your project foreman got sick, except the lumber didn't arrive when it was supposed to because there was a supply hiccup. Your ability to respond to all those things involves you reacting in the moment, responding, going, okay, wait, something didn't go the way I wanted. Do we have contingency plans? How do we relate to it? How do we recover this and make this still work? If you could ever be in a fully defined environment, the implication there is that every time you predicted something, it simply happened. Everything went just the way you expected. Everybody did exactly the right work. There was no need to evaluate it. There was no need to check out whether anybody had made any mistakes or whether it actually solved the problems. It just worked. It got to the end and it was done. And while some environments get pretty close to this in factories, no environment I think is fully at that defined place, nor is any environment fully at the empirical place. There is always a part where you have to go, okay, hang on. What's the next step? How do I put this down? Like, what is the next thing I need to do? And so the question isn't, are you defined or empirical? It's where do you sit on the spectrum between defined and empirical? And these parameters, what we call the six parameters, originally developed by a few people who, who we used to work with, this is why we have these. Yep. So let's talk a little bit about the six parameters. Yeah. Uh, We're not going to go into super great detail. Um, If you want, you can follow up with us outside of this, whether that's on social media. We'll probably be doing some posts about the six parameters. So here they are. The first one I'm going to call innovation needed. And basically what Ben and I mean when we say that is how much new stuff do you need to create from scratch in order to meet your goal? So an example would be one of the one examples we give is NASA needed to create new fabrics for the moon landing in space that didn't exist yet. They're like, we know that the, the suit needs to meet these sort of product criteria, but we don't actually have the technology to do that right now. So we have to invent it. So that would be something where a high innovation is required. So if you need to invent something that doesn't exist to succeed, that pushes you more towards empirical. Whereas if you're just using a bunch of components that have been used a million times before and you know how they all work, that probably means, and you're just kind of repeating an existing approach or using existing technology that pushes you more towards define. The next one is uncertainty. And this is this idea of change that we talk about a lot. This idea of I'm going to build a gameplay system or I'm going to create a character. I'm going to write a story. Does it work? Does it resonate? I really don't know. Some people have better instincts than others, but I don't know until I put it in front of players and they interact with it. And then I get to see, will it solve the problem? I don't know. The more you don't know, the more you are in the empirical space, right? If I'm I'm just like trying stuff and hoping it works, I'm very much in the empirical space. Whereas if there's very little uncertainty, I have high confidence, even perfect confidence because I've done this before and I know exactly how it's going to work and exactly the problems it's going to solve. That pushes me more towards the defined space. Yeah. Like you, we were talking about earlier, like if you're working on the assembly line for the best-selling car in America. Exactly, exactly. And by the way, like there are some game companies, like if you're making Assassin's Creed 5 and the first four sold over $200 million, 
in sales, like you're in relatively safe position from an uncertainty standpoint in many respects. So it, may, it right. makes sense why some of those- For some parts of that game. For some parts for of that sure. game, yeah. yeah. And I love your uh, example of the music there too. It's like the, the idea of I'll, I'll know it when I hear it or I'll know it when I see it. That's the right. feeling, right? And that when the uncertainty is high. So the next one is rate of change, which is basically, when we say rate of change, we're talking about the rate of change in the done state. So I know that sounds kind of abstract, but it's basically like the idea here is that one of the things that software companies ran into in the 80s and 90s that no one had ever really experienced before was that by the time they got the project out the door, something better had already come along from a competitor or the market had already changed what it needed. So basically for the first time ever, just in the time it would take to create the product based on the idea that they had, it was already out of date or already obsolete by the time they got it to market. That is indicative of a high rate of change. So as you can imagine, high rate of change puts you more towards the empirical. Low rate of change of done puts you more towards the defined. And we define this like this is competitors in your space. Again, changing the player perception, changing the player preference when it comes to game dev. This is like new tools coming out that shift how long or how you're going to iterate. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens here that shifts the world. But think, yeah, again, like this is this is the change in the overall environment. So we started innovation needed, uncertainty and rate of change. Those ones are all similar in that the higher they are, the more likely you are to be in an empirical system. The lower they are, the more likely you are to be in a defined system. So cost of change, this is if I need to change something, what's the cost of that? And in software and in game dev particularly, we tend to have relatively low costs of change. And what low cost of change enables is for you to try stuff because, oh, this didn't work, I'll try something else. And there's a low cost to that change to the system. Some environments, like if you're building a building and you decide two thirds of the way through the project that actually you wanna shift the foundation, that's incredibly costly to change and may actually not be viable at all. And so when you have a high cost of change, we swap, now that pushes you towards the defined space because you want to be thinking more upfront to avoid having to change and pay that cost. And by the way, that cost could be time, it could be money, could be people or whatever. Whereas when you have a low cost of change in your system, that pushes you towards the empirical side. It allows you to do more iteration, experimentation in those things because yeah, you can control Z and try again. Control Z, undo, try again, try again. Yeah, so number five is controllability. And again, this is controllability of the environment and I think also the humans is how we think about this. So basically like how much natural chaos is embedded in the infrastructure. And, and again, we use the human example a lot because humans are inherently uncontrollable. And in the mm -hmm. past, that's been problematic, right? So we need to bring humans into a controlling structure even to the point where back in the old days, so as you can imagine, the less your controllability is, the more you're going to an empirical system. The more your controllability is, the more you're going to a defined system. The uncontrollability, in other words, the uncertainty that humans bring into your system is what you're leveraging in creative endeavor. That is the thing, like you want a concept artist to do unpredictable things that surprise and delight everybody that create new types of art and that help. And so 
when you have that low controllability of the environment, it means that, yes, you might trend towards the empirical system, but don't think about it as bad. Think about it as like, this is actually a, a feature, not a bug when it comes to creative development. So we've talked about innovation needed, uncertainty, rate of change. Then we talked about cost of change and controllability. The final one is impact of failure. Impact of failure is what happens if this doesn't work. If the cost of failure is zero, then I'm not worried about it. And I can try a bunch of stuff. And if most of them fail, I don't care. I can just keep trying because the cost of failure is so low. But if the cost of failure is very high, I really don't want to take too many shots at this because anytime I take a shot at it and it fails, that is a meaningful loss of something to me. Or if you do take a shot, you best make sure you plan it perfectly, right? Exactly. And this is why, you know, we talk about the Apollo 11 moon landing, right? We're sending human beings into space. This is something that hadn't been done many times before. Now they're going to leave Earth's orbit. Now they're going to go around the moon. Now they're going to land a separate vehicle that we've never actually deployed in a real environment before. Go walk around on the moon for some amount of time, get back in that vehicle, send it back up into the orbit of the moon to reattach to the other vehicle. And then that vehicle is going to boost its way out of the moon's orbit back to the Earth orbit. And like all of this has to it's it's insane, the complexity. And by the way, all that happens if we screw it up is a bunch of our smartest people die instantly. Right. <laughs> and we take a the most massive and epic slap in the face from a national prestige perspective. Yep that we could possibly take during a time where we're trying to demonstrate that we are the better of the two leading global superpowers. Right. So like, think about this for a second. Again, this is an extreme, almost comically extreme case in so many ways when it comes to impact of failure, but like the Soviets had launched Sputnik and we were basically saying here in America, this is the ultimate case of political one-upsmanship, right? Like we have to nail this. I think sadly in that case, probably the lives were perhaps less of a concern than the national <laughs> prestige, but Ben has a military yeah. background, right? Like as a commanding officer, orders that you give can result in lives being lost or lives yes. being saved, or perhaps at the end of the day, there's a certain amount of lives being lost that's inevitable. So now you can understand yes. why the military tends to take a more defined approach, right? Right. And by the way, having a chance to take a step back and discuss that context with your team and fellow leaders can be of amazing value for your team. And that's where this has practical use. So you're like, okay, thanks, Aaron and Ben, for giving me these six parameters and a bunch of theory and some context sensitive tools. Like, what the heck am I supposed to do about this? My team is really pissed. We need to stand up. What am I supposed to do? Well, okay. This is a macro conversation we're having today, right? We're addressing this sort of hatred towards agile and agile methodologies that, and the, the frustration that all these good developers are starting to generate some serious resentment towards these ideas. And you may have arguing on your team about this, and we see this all the time, and you might be wondering what you can do about it. What we're saying you should do and can do is change the conversation. Instead of saying, is this 15 minute meeting we have every day stupid or not? Try to peel back some layers and ask the question, what does our team need right now? What does this project require from us right now and in the future? And you can use the six parameters to stimulate that conversation. One goofy little thing you can do is literally just write down all six parameters on the board with a, a line 
next to each one and have everybody on your team just start a conversation where they think innovation needed is on this project. Again, maybe you're just using Unreal Engine and it's all about just plugging in the assets, or maybe you have to build a new engine from scratch and you're building in a genre that no one knows is good or no one's ever done before. Like, whatever it is, have the conversation and get your team on board because I guarantee that the process you come up with down the road, whatever it is, is going to be way more palatable if your team is on the same page about what's required and the best way to work. And that's what we're saying. And by the way, to make things a little bit more complicated, but also super relevant, this exercise of trying to figure out where you are on the spectrum between defined and empirical is in and itself an empirical exercise because you're inspecting and adapting, inspecting and adapting. You get in that room with your team, you go over the six parameters, you hear everyone's thoughts, you debate, you discuss, that's an empirical process, right? So lean into that and use this tool to help you because if your team gets aligned on that, so many of these other conversations get so much easier. Then we don't care what kind of meetings you have. We don't care if you have a sprint review or not, like whatever you need, maybe a place to check in on uh, the last iteration of the product so that we can all get uh, realigned on what to work on next might be actually really valuable for you. And if so, have a meeting about that, but you don't have to have a meeting about that if it doesn't make sense for you. And that's the point. That's what we want leaders thinking about. That's what we want you to take away from this. Be deliberate and be thoughtful about how you implement process. And this is the way to cut through arguments. Yeah. As we head towards concluding, I also want to throw one thing out here too, which is that we all need to acknowledge that these are learned skills and likely skills learned outside of the formal institutions in which we were reared up. So whether that be civic structures like government, schools, our parents training us on stuff like Taylorism and sort of factor the factory approach to thinking and structuring problems and solutions has been something in our society for several hundred years. And even in the West, where we're really trying to kind of break free of this and elevate, I think we still struggle with it more than we realize. I personally believe that the majority of the frustration directed at the idea of like management is around this stuff is actually a people contributors recognizing there's a better, more modern approach and managers in their attempts to control things, leaning into those old skills. And you can hardly blame anybody because we were trained to do something different than what is being required of us now. The reality is, is there's very few places to get a formal education in how to be a very good or great game developer. The best game developers I know learned everything not at school, they learned it on the job. And there's something to say for experience, but this is something bigger than that. This is a complete frame shift. The classroom format doesn't really serve the realities very well. And how could it? You know, school isn't something that changes in 10 years. The game industry changes every three years, it feels like now. So just keep that in mind and, and understand and have empathy that all of us are trying to play catch up here. And that for many of us, perhaps most of us, we're fighting against old habits that have been ingrained in our heads since day one. And that, if you understand that, I think a lot of this starts to become a lot more clear. So let's do our conclusion really quick here of the key takeaways on this issue of like 
developer frustration towards Agile, the world changing, all this stuff. Number one, developers hate Agile because of what it has become, the same old management approach with a different label. As leaders, we need to fight against this. We need to bring that critical thinking and that deliberateness using these frameworks so that our teams can have confidence that this, the frameworks we set up are appropriate for the constraints that they have to deal with this. Number two, we've lost our way with Agile. We don't even know what it means anymore. We can't have an enlightened conversation about it because we don't share a common understanding. Understand that that's really what's happening when a lot of people are getting really upset about these things. Again, it sounds cynical. It's not meant to be. It's just what I've observed and what Ben has observed. Keep in mind that as a leader, you need to cut through that. So take a step back, understand the problem, use the six parameters and agree with your team and with your fellow leaders, what is it that we're trying to solve? Take the conversation away from the process. Number three, the world is changing very rapidly. We need new tools to help our teams be successful in this new world. Remember, the six parameters are there to help you with this, but you need to keep in mind that when it comes to things like uncertainty, rate of change, cost of change, these things are evolving at a blistering pace. Number four, agile, scrum, safe. None of this is important. I know that's controversial. I'm not saying it's bad, but that's not what we're trying to talk about here. Ask yourself, get your team involved in a conversation where you ask each other, what are the challenges around us? What do we need to be successful? Ask yourself if agile values and principles apply to you, then come up with your own system if need be, or have that help you tear down an old bad system if you need that too. Remember, think about what's needed and then do what needs to be done and cut through that. That's what leadership means in this context. All right, if you enjoyed this, we appreciate it firstly, but we invite you to join game developers across the world and sign up for our newsletter. It's the Building Better Games newsletter. You can access it at buildingbettergames.gg newsletter. Again, that's buildingbettergames.gg newsletter. Every two weeks, we will deliver one thing that will increase your chances of delivering a successful game straight to your inbox. Thank you all.